0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I'm going to be your one and only host for today's show. Uh, You might notice, if you're a longtime listener, that my voice sounds pretty bad today. Uh, The reality is, as we've talked about in previous episodes, unappreciated and underpaid labor sustains my podcast, but to be honest, it also sustains my physical health. And so as this strike, this totally illegal strike by the Stronger by Science podcast co-host union continues, um, my physical health is deteriorating at a very rapid and very alarming rate. Um, So just to give an update on where we're at there, uh, previously the union requested contact to be reinstated with family and friends. Uh, I made a concession there and allowed that. Uh, Then they wanted Christmas Day off in the future Uh, once again. I made another very generous concession, and uh, you know, part of that was generosity. Another part was I'm getting a lot of very unfair bad press in the YouTube comments and the Facebook group. Uh, so shame on the individuals who are being very rude to me there. Uh, so I made these concessions, and I only implemented very modest pay reductions uh, in order to offset some of the severe damages that the podcast would incur from those concessions, But unfortunately, the greed and the treachery of this union knows no bounds. Uh, They have now requested a private jet for the union. Uh, So I got that request, and it caught me off guard, I will admit. Uh, So when I get caught off guard, I have a team meeting with my lawyer and my accountant just to kind of get my bearings. My lawyer tells me that 100% of this union actually lives in the city where the podcast is filmed and produced, So I don't know where they're flying to. Um, And so then I chat with my accountant. My accountant tells me that there has never been a single documented instance of approved business travel for the podcast. They also told me that if I buy a brand new Gulfstream jet, that is going to burn through at least two full months of the podcast budget. Uh, So I talk with the union. I say, listen, let's make a deal here. I will charter a private flight whenever there is business-related travel. You just got to, you know, get the business travel approved. I'll charter the flight. You won't have to fly commercial. Uh, They immediately turn that down. They are insisting that they want to actually own the aircraft itself. Uh, So, you know, I'm very generous. I'm a very altruistic man. Uh, I give and I give and I give. Uh, but even I have limits, okay? So I thought we were at an impasse. Previously, I am feeling worse than ever about where we're at with the union, uh, and it is alarming. I'm very concerned about the deterioration of the show, and I'm I'm very concerned about the deterioration of my physical health, which is uh, obviously visually apparent, and you can hear it as well. So I am falling apart, but I will continue to push forward very bravely. So before we dive into today's content, Uh, There are many ways to support the show if you like it, and as you can hear from the way the strike is going, we need your support more than ever. Uh, You can like, rate, or subscribe wherever you get the podcast. You can sign up for our newsletter at strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter, Uh, and if you do sign up, you're going to get our research spotlight emails. Those go out every Wednesday and give you a really nice, concise update on some new research in the world of exercise and nutrition. If you're looking for a one-on-one virtual coach, we do offer that as well. You can learn more at strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. If you're looking for a discount on your supplements, you can go to bulksupplements.com. They have a wide variety of great products, and you can use the discount code SBSPOD to get 5% off your order. You could subscribe to the Mass Research Review, which gives you a really comprehensive research update every single month. And you can check out Macrofactor. That is the diet app that Greg and I created along with a very talented team of colleagues. Uh, We think you're going to love it, which is why we offer a free trial. You can try it out, see if you love it, and hopefully you will, and you'll stick with it. So Macrofactor, you can learn more at Macrofactorapp.com, or you can just search it uh, in the app stores. All right, so before I get into the new content for today's episode, I want to address uh, three questions or provide a few uh clarifications i guess based on listener feedback and based on uh, some chatter in the groups uh so by the way if you're not a member uh we we have a subreddit for stronger by science and we also have a facebook group which is called stronger by science community if you're not already a member of one or both you should check them out the really really good communities a very supportive group of people and some really good conversation uh, going on in those groups, so be sure to check them out. So I want to address three things. First of all, someone asked why there's a bunch of bowls behind me, and they kind of look like those things that you might use to grind something up into a fine powder. Uh, That's not what they are. They're referring to these. You can see a variety of them behind me. So these are not for grinding powders. These are singing bowls. Uh, So over the last couple of years, I have been uh, reading and studying a lot about uh, about Buddhism. And, uh, of course, with Buddhism, there, there's a, a lot of different types of meditation. And sometimes uh, people in certain uh, schools or traditions of Buddhism will enjoy using these singing bowls as part of meditative practice. So when you strike the bowl with the uh, the mallet that comes with it, it makes a very nice tone, um, and it, it can kind of facilitate a level of relaxation and focus as you listen to the tone and, uh, and you know, do perhaps like a sitting uh, meditation, some type of mindfulness meditation. So uh, these types of bowls are common in certain types of Buddhism, and they are, I think they're very pretty and very lovely. They make a nice sound. And the question about why there are so many is because much like any percussive instrument, the size and shape can impact the specific tone that is produced. Uh, And so for that reason, it's common to get an entire set with each bowl having a slightly different shape and slightly different uh, size, and so then you have different tones that are created uh, when you strike them. So that is what the bowls are all about, and that actually is relevant to today's show um, because we are going to talk a little bit about mindful eating which is an offshoot of general mindfulness as a concept, which has a lot of roots in Buddhist practice. Uh, So if you're asking why I have these, like I said, each one has a different tone, and based on the physics of sound waves, you could say that they very literally set different vibes. Okay, So number two, a little clarification. In a previous episode, I was talking about uh, it was It was I believe part two of my series on uh, popular diets and common misconceptions in nutrition. Uh, I called olive oil a vegetable oil. Here's the thing about olives. they're not vegetables. Uh, olives are technically a fruit. Uh, and something that I learned recently is that cucumbers are also a fruit. Uh, I am not a fruit denier, but I will say if I consume something and it's not very sweet, it's hard for, or citrusy it's hard for me to call it a fruit i I just kind of mentally file it away as something else so uh yeah like i said olives not a vegetable very much a fruit Um, and uh, i appreciate the listener for pointing that out sometimes you sit in front of a camera for 90 minutes two hours and uh, you misspeak and you miscategorize so uh, i always appreciate when people point those things out and then i can clarify on the show what I was doing there, though, is I was talking about the Mediterranean diet, which tends to be very high in olive oil. Uh, or Olive oil is really a, a featured food that is kind of front and center when you talk about the Mediterranean diet. And in that episode, I wanted to not just talk about popular diets, but also address really common or really popular misconceptions in nutrition. Now, Mediterranean diet is a bit of an outlier in the sense that when you compare it to the other diets that are frequently recommended by health organizations, it tends to be a little higher in fat than the others. And that fat is mostly coming from plant-based oils. So olive oil is one, but you'll find some other plant-based oils in there as well. And what I wanted to do is use the Mediterranean diet as a jumping-off point so I could address some common mis- misconceptions about plant-based oils, and more specifically, seed oils. So you know, you can kind of broadly talk about plant-based oils, you could focus even even further on vegetable-based oils, and then you can focus even closer on seed oils. And so there's a lot of uh, negativity on the internet about seed oils right now that I think is ill-advised and not quite accurate, okay? So I wanted to, to at least address some of those misconceptions, and in the process, I miscategorized olives as vegetables. That was my mistake. Uh, Okay, the last thing I want to mention here. um, Back in episode 107, I was talking about, I believe, self-determination theory and different types of motivation. So in that process, I talked about intrinsic motivation being a very high-quality form of motivation. Uh, And so there was a question in the Stronger by Science community Facebook group and the listener basically said, I was listening to episode 107, lots of hype about intrinsic motivation. I got diagnosed with ADHD this year, and one of the big revelations I've noticed is how much extrinsic factors can help keep me on track. So is all of this intrinsic motivation research done on neurotypical people? And, and then a kind of a secondary question, does it apply to people who are neurodivergent or neurodiverse? Uh, That was an excellent question and a very excellent discussion in the Facebook group about it. Uh, So there's a few things I want to mention here. First of all, it was not my intention to suggest that purely intrinsic motivation is the only good source of motivation, nor did I intend to imply that extrinsic motivation is totally useless. Uh, So the working consensus of the literature is is that, generally speaking, motivation quality increases as it becomes more intrinsic in nature. And another way to frame that is, uh, as the perceived locus of causality becomes more internal, we tend to see that the general quality of the motivation goes up. Um, So there are many different forms of extrinsic motivation. And so you could even look within the category of extrinsic motivation— divide it up into several t- subtypes and kind of put them on a spectrum of which of these extrinsic for, uh, types of motivation are more intrinsic in nature. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but we can kind of align them on a spectrum based on things like the perceived locus of causality, whether that's internal or external. So uh, I'm going to put a link in the show notes where you can look at this spectrum of motivation quality as posited by self-determination theory but it starts with a motivation a complete lack of motivation and then on the other end of the spectrum kind of highest quality is purely intrinsic motivation and then in between there are several forms of extrinsic motivation and as you go up the spectrum and go to higher and higher and higher quality levels you see that the uh, the extrinsic forms of motivation become more intrinsic in nature, so they aren't what we would call intrinsic motivation, but they are getting closer. Um, and so, for example, um, you know, just to give an idea, um, you could, you know, there are uh, uh, an example I mentioned in the uh, in the podcast originally was about just doing your homework or doing an assignment for for school or for you know a university course or whatever you know, there are some kids who will, you know, just say, I'm going to do this homework assignment because if I don't, I'm going to get yelled at, I'm going to get in trouble, whatever, right? So that uh, perceived locus of causality is very external, right? You're just doing something so that someone else won't get mad at you. And they're the person who's determining what you do, uh, when you do it, how you do it. And You know, indirectly, why you do it, right? Because if they weren't telling you to do it, you never would do it in the first place. You're just doing it to appease them and to avoid punishment, right? So that certainly falls under the umbrella of extrinsic motivation. But you could also look at doing a homework assignment or an assignment for a university course and say, you know, I don't love this assignment. I'm not doing this because I'm interested in it, because I enjoy it, because it brings me any level of inherent satisfaction. But I do intrinsically understand that this is good for me. Like, I believe that doing this assignment is in my best interest, not for avoiding punishment, but for learning this material so I can get into the major that I want to study, get the degree I want, enter the career I want. So again, you're not doing it for purely intrinsic factors. It is still a force or a, a type of... Uh, extrinsic motivation that's kind of forcing you toward the decision to actually do it um but but we can see with under the umbrella of extrinsic motivation that can look very very different one of those scenarios there are much more intrinsic factors at play compared to the other so doing something to avoid punishment is very different from doing something because you believe it's in your best interest even though there are still, you know, there's still some extrinsic motivation going on in that scenario. So that's one thing. Second thing. um, The second thing I want to address is the question, um, kind of a two-part question. This motivation research, first of all, is it mostly done in people who are neurotypical or who are not neurodivergent? And, and, you know, by extension, to what extent does this apply to people who are neurodivergent? Um, So, it is true that the vast majority of this motivation research is done using study participants who are not neurotypical or do not have any type of neurodivergence that, that has been diagnosed. Um, so I do not reference this research to be uh, exclusionary in nature. I certainly don't reference it to diminish or downplay the importance of understanding motivation processes in neurodivergent individuals. Um you know, this is important to me. I mean, I, I have a condition that I believe is broadly considered a form of, of neurodivergence. Uh, I have Tourette syndrome uh, diagnosed at the age of two. So that's kind of been a, a common thing in my life is kind of taking the generalizable advice and then saying, okay, but how does that actually apply to me, given that I have this form of, of neurodivergence? So that's been a, a theme throughout my entire life and i've even i've coached a lot of neurodivergent individuals as well uh when i was uh working with the special olympics as a strength coach uh, i did that for like 5 or 6 years i say working i was i was a volunteer coach um but yeah we we had a lot of athletes who were neurodivergent and so we we were kind of uh constantly at top of mind was the question of you know what is the most generalizable way you would coach this but then step 2 is How would you modify that for a particular form of neurodivergence based on the individual athlete Um, so it is common for researchers to begin studying a topic by allocating their effort toward understanding the topic in the most generalizable context possible and then later the field will try to refine that understanding so it can be applied to less generalizable circumstances Uh, So, for example, getting away from motivation and just talking about human movement, you know, uh, there's a lot of research that's been done trying to understand neuromuscular control, how humans navigate movement of the body. And a lot of that research uh, is done in people who do not have any neuromuscular conditions or deficits. So the idea is, in the most generalizable sense possible, let's get an understanding of neuromuscular control so that we can build out the theories and have this basic template of understanding and then later we will translate that information so that we can understand the differences that we observe in people who have things like parkinson's disease or ischemic brain injuries that that influence movement uh, or really any other medical state that can alter neuromuscular control so a lot of this research and motivation, a lot of the theory-building research does uh, does take place in the context of populations who are neurotypical or who are not neurodivergent, um, and, and hopefully we will have a lot more research in the future that builds upon this. and. Refines it so that we can say, okay, we understand the working theory of motivation in neurotypical individuals, but for each specific type of neurodivergent condition, uh, how do we then adjust or adapt that theory in a way that is more tailored and individualized to the specific form of neurodivergence? Because um, I would speculate that we're not going to be able to say, here's how motivation works for neurotypical people. And here's how it works for people with vari- with any type of neurodivergence. You know, the way that the basic underlying theory is refined and adjusted is probably going to to be specific to the exact form of neurodivergence that that's being discussed. Uh, the third thing I want to mention here is um, in that thread, it became clear that there was some degree of misunderstanding about extrinsic motivation versus extrinsic support systems. Uh, So for example, I lean very heavily on my girlfriend to hold me accountable to my goals. Uh, but, But that is not necessarily purely extrinsic motivation. That is an extrinsic support system. So I set the goals because I believe they're important and I believe that they're in my best interest. I mean, the goals that I'm setting are motivated by very intrinsic factors. But I'm relying on social support as an extrinsic support system to help me stay on track with those goals. So the motivation is pretty intrinsic in nature, but there are some external support systems in place to help me stay on track. So I wouldn't call all of my goals to... You know, I wouldn't say that they're all driven by purely intrinsic motivation, but they are pretty near the intrinsic side of that motivation spectrum. Uh, but when we talk about this social support, for example, we could say that that falls under the relatedness category of self-determination theory, um, or we could also put it under the opportunity category of the combi model of behavior change. So what we're trying to do is use, uh, or, or I wouldn't say use, we want to create and lean on a a type of environment that is supportive to what we're trying to achieve and that can be very helpful with accountability with habit formation so having external sources of support does not mean that you are relying on purely extrinsic motivation there is a difference there and i I just mentioned how those things would fit into self-determination theory and the COMB model of behavior change if you have no idea what i'm talking about when i when i reference those Be sure to check out episode 107 which discusses both of those in detail it'll help uh, contextualize how i kind of categorize those things Uh, and then the fourth thing i want to mention very very simple if external sources of support or even extrinsic motivation help you make big strides toward goals that are fulfilling and productive for you uh, and they make you a happier and a healthier person i think that's fantastic okay so as an evidence-based content creator, my goal is to convey the most generalizable evidence possible rather than just kind of prioritizing my experience in spite of the conclusions that we see in the scientific literature. So if someone asked me, you know, hey, talk about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, I'm going to go to the research. I'm not just going to say, you know what, I, I do this and it works for me. So the idea there is we want to find research so that we can draw conclusions that are the most generalizable conclusions based on the science. But there are definitely some psychological concepts where I can acknowledge that the scientific consensus is something, and then my personal experience seems to be something else, right? So there are things in the psychology literature that I can acknowledge as being the scientific consensus, while also acknowledging that they aren't the best fit for my personal psychological profile. So, whenever I find myself in that situation, I just keep doing the stuff that works for me, while understanding that I might be a bit of an outlier or or just to be less um extreme with my language, I might just be uh, a bit of an exception to the norm. I you know, the the thing that works for most people might not be the best thing for me, and I can accept that, but when I create content, I don't want to say, you know, I know that the science says this, but my personal experience is different, so I'm just going to go with with what works for me when I'm making content. But in my day-to-day life, I am going to be applying a mixture of, I lean on the evidence to figure out what seems to work for most people. But in my day-to-day life, I'm constantly refining that and tailoring it to my own experience. So when I'm really at a loss and I don't know where to begin, I go to the research. I try things based on the scientific consensus. But then over time, you start to get an idea of what works for you and what doesn't. So the, what I would encourage is you know if if you're listening to some of that content about goal setting motivation behavior change and you're saying you know what I understand that the science says that but it just doesn't work for me uh the reason that we're doing this is to find things that that work for us right so so you should always value your own personal experience and and implement things that seem to be working for you in a really productive way. So if extrinsic motivation is helping you make these big strides towards your goals, you know, you're happier, you're healthier, you're more fulfilled when you're using these forms of extrinsic motivation, by all means, that's what you should be doing. Uh, all right, so let's move on to the nutrition content for today's episode. The two things I want to talk about here are diet tracking and mindful eating. So we're going to start with diet tracking because You know we are it's january and so people are really getting excited and enthusiastic about their goals for the new year a lot of folks are getting into diet tracking for the first time in a while maybe the first time ever or they're at least considering getting into diet tracking and there are a lot of questions about it a lot of misconceptions so i want to talk about diet tracking more broadly and one of the first questions that comes up with diet tracking you know, calorie tracking, macro tracking, etc., or just keeping a, a a plain old food diary, one of the questions that comes up is, does diet tracking work? Um, and the answer is, it kind of depends, uh, because diet tracking is an act of description, okay? So you could track d- diet habits that are very incompatible with your goals. So you're doing diet tracking, but when you look down at the information, you say, what I'm eating, you know, my eating habits right now are not at all compatible with what I'm trying to achieve. If you're tracking those habits, but you don't do anything with the information, you're not making any adjustments to your behaviors or your nu- nutritional intakes. Uh, you're you're not going to be making successful strides towards your goals just by describing actions that are not compatible with your goals, right? So, if you are di- tracking your diet, but you're not doing anything with the information, uh, you're finding that you know, your, your dietary practices are incompatible with your goals and you're just continuing to document that, that contradiction, that's really not going to take you any closer to those goals. Uh, but diet tracking can be very, very useful, even though it's merely an act of description. So for example, uh, it's very possible, a common observation is a lot of people don't realize that their dietary habits were actually Super incompatible with their goals. Um, there are a lot of people who start tracking for the first time and say, Whoa, I had no idea that my intakes were so incompatible with what I'm trying to achieve here. So, in that scenario, diet tracking can help you learn that and it can help you make the decision to adjust your diet accordingly. Um, an- another instance where diet tracking can be helpful is sometimes people really like to have tangible confirmation that they are on track with what they're trying to achieve. So, you know, sometimes people will want to continue tracking consistently just so they can be more confident that on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis, they are continuing to eat in a way that is fully compatible um, with the goals that they've set for themselves. If there are some people who, um, you know, if they stop tracking, they feel like they lose They lose a sense of understanding of whether or not they are truly staying on track with their dietary goals. And so for them, having the objective data to lean on uh, brings a source of confidence and comfort where they can look at their intakes and say, I know I'm staying on top of this. I know that I'm staying on track. So tracking works for a few different things. Dietary tracking makes you more aware of your dietary habits. It helps you monitor your dietary habits, and it empowers you to implement and adjust uh, a, a set of dietary strategies or dietary habits uh, that ultimately can bring you closer to your goals. So those are the things that tracking really helps with. It's not that tracking automatically is going to you know, do something that revolutionizes your fitness or your physique or your health, but it it gives you the information you need to take that next step where You become more aware of your dietary habits and intakes. You're now actively monitoring those habits and intakes. And now you feel very empowered and informed so that you can actually adjust those habits and intakes and make them more compatible, more in line with the goals that you've set. And so that is, in theory, what tracking ought to do. And the research generally bears out the efficacy of diet tracking. So when we look at the research... It often shows that self monitoring is an important predictor of successful weight loss and long term maintenance after weight has been lost. Uh, so, self monitoring, you might be wondering what that term specifically means. Uh, two very helpful forms of self monitoring include weight tracking and diet tracking. Okay, so self monitoring is exactly what it sounds like monitoring oneself. And when we talk about uh, goals pertaining to fitness, body composition, health. Two of the most common things to self-monitor would be body weight and nutritional intake. So when we look at the research, keeping tabs on changes in body weight and keeping tabs on your diet intakes and your diet habits, those seem to be uh, pretty consistent predictors of successful outcomes. And even more more practically speaking, um, or I guess more anecdotally speaking, uh, several years back, I was working on a study um, that was being done in conjunction with a weight loss center. So this this weight loss center was helping people lose weight, not not doing you know little eight week crash diets, but really sustainable, long term weight loss with frequent office visits. You know, this was long-term sustainable weight loss. What was the entire focus of this uh, this program and this center? And I would be in the laboratory, and people would come back for these uh, repeated visits uh, for for data collection. And obviously, in any weight loss trial, some people are going to have a, a tremendous amount of set uh, of success, and some people are going to struggle much more than others. You know, there there are going to be divergences in outcomes, and one of the things that really struck me was the more I talked with the individuals who were really excelling in this program, the people who were losing tremendous amounts of weight and keeping it off for very long stretches of time, uh, one, of, one of the really striking observations was that they were pretty much all telling me the same thing, where I, I would sit down and just say, how are you doing this? Like, like you know, because you know, I can see relative to their peers that they are really excelling, and one of the most common things they would tell me is I just track stuff. I track my body weight. I track my diet. If I notice that my calories are creeping up with my dietary intakes, I see it early before I gain a bunch of weight and I can, I can rectify that. I can correct that. If I see that my weight is creeping up, that is an indicator sometimes, okay, now I need to look at my diet and see why that might be the case. You know, where are these extra calories coming from? Or perhaps maybe my physical activity level has dropped and i need to adjust my diet to offset that Uh, but without question it was it was a really clear thing um the more i talked to these folks self-monitoring can be an extremely powerful tool and diet tracking is a particular particularly useful form of self-monitoring now as i said before uh diet tracking calorie counting it can be very very helpful very informative very effective uh, for achieving a variety of health and fitness-related goals. However, just tracking your diet is, is not going to guarantee success. You need to actually use the information that you're getting, but you also need to make sure that you're tracking your diet effectively. Um, if there are big sources of error in your approach to diet tracking, it's going to limit your ability to effectively use the information that you're getting from that tracking process. Um, so Greg wrote an excellent article about some of the the most common errors that can derail a person's efforts with calorie counting or diet tracking. Um, because it, it's not uncommon to hear people say, I tried diet tracking and calorie counting and it didn't work for me. And I think when you hear that, it's important to uh to dig into that a little bit and explore where things might have gone wrong. Uh, because calorie counting just based on uh, laws of physics, it should work, but 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 there are many places where we can have sources of error and, you know, issues with adherence and things like that. There are ways it can go wrong for sure. So um, I'm going to link Greg, Greg's article in the notes for today's show if you want to read it. I, I would encourage people to read it. It's very, very good. But I want to briefly mention some of the biggest uh, challenges or, or sources of error when it comes to calorie counting. Uh, number one is just aiming for a fixed calorie target that is a one-size-fits-all target. So you might find websites that say if you're a biological female, you should aim for 1,200 calories a day when you're losing weight. And if you're a biological male, you know, aim for 1,500 calories per day. Um, the issue is that those numbers will be good for some people and terrible for others. Um, it, it's, it's virtually impossible to make that type of one-size-fits-all recommendation if the goal is to promote sustainable weight loss at an appropriate rate some people are going to need a higher calorie target some are going to be lower and we can't just give the same number to everybody or you know the same number to everybody who shares the same biological sex um there are a lot of factors that influence an, an individual's energy needs and so if you're using a fixed target for for daily calorie intake um it might not be appropriate for you. And if you're using the wrong if you have a if you're using the wrong calorie target that's not appropriate for you, obviously that is going to hinder progress in, in a pretty significant way. Uh, number two, using activity trackers to determine energy needs. So some people will say, I'm not going to use a generic one size fits all calorie recommendation. I'm going to use uh, some type of wearable technology like a watch to track my daily energy expenditure and I'm going to use that number to set my calorie target for whatever my goal happens to be weight loss weight maintenance weight gain uh, the issue there is that a lot of these activity trackers are really not precise enough they, they don't have the necessary reliability and validity to actually use them for that purpose they are they are, are not generally accurate enough to give you a calorie target that you can feel very, very confident in for your fitness goals. Um, So I don't want to say that those types of trackers are not useful at all. They are useful for a number of things. So one of the things that they're very good for is tracking heart rate. They, They seem to do a very good job with heart rate. They seem to do a pretty good job with step counts as well. So these types of wearable devices, they're getting better over time, but they're still really not I wouldn't even consider them to be close in terms of being able to use them to determine uh, you know, what your calorie target should be for a given rate of weight gain or weight loss or weight maintenance. Um, they're, they're very nice if you like to monitor your heart rate or monitor your step count. But if you're using a, a, an activity tracker to set your daily calorie target, uh, it, it very well could lead you astray and ultimately hinder your, your progress. Uh, number three, uh, a third major source of error. That could lead to people saying, hey, I tried calorie counting and it didn't work. Um, that would be using a fairly generic calorie calculator, right? So I mentioned what we're trying to do when we're setting a calorie target is figure out how many calories do you burn every day and therefore how many calories should you eat every day to create a caloric deficit or a caloric surplus or whatever you're trying to do, Um so obviously using a single one-size-fits-all number like 1,200 calories, that's not going to be sufficiently individualized. Using an activity tracker, like I said, there's too much error associated with the number that you're getting. Uh, it, it cannot really, at this point, the current generation of trackers, uh, of activity trackers cannot really give you a, a number or a calorie target that you have a high level of confidence in. There's just too much error to rely on it for that specific purpose in my opinion and then number three um if you're using a calorie calculator you might input uh things like your age biological sex height weight uh bmi or body fat percentage there are a variety of different calculators that use validated equations from research where you put in some basic demographic characteristics and it tells you okay based on what you put in here we believe that your daily energy expenditure is you know 1900 calories right so there are many of these calculators that exist uh they're better than just using a one-size-fits-all number Um, but these these types of validated equations they work very well they work pretty well at the population level but when you're trying to make an individualized assessment of energy expenditure they're simply not precise enough for that purpose um when we look at how well these equations estimate energy expenditure, they do a pretty good job if we're trying to get the average energy expenditure of a group of 3,000 people. But when we're talking about a specific person, you know, the question is, what predictors are these equations actually using uh, in order to give a calorie target? And the best one they could use is fat-free mass. So the amount of fat-free mass that you have Is going to be the single biggest predictor of your resting energy expenditure. So, ideally, you're going to be using something that, first of all, is based on fat free mass, but second of all, is going to incorporate your physical activity habits with some type of correction factor. The problem is, fat free mass is not uh, a perfect predictor of resting energy expenditure. It's far from perfect. Two people with the same exact amount of fat free mass could have very, very different resting energy expenditure. And then, you're going to be multiplying that by a physical activity correction factor, and those are very imprecise. Um, It can be difficult to know exactly what correction factor you should be using, especially with the classic set that is most popular. They kind of merge non-exercise and structured exercise activity into one general thing for physical activity, which I think is difficult to justify and very confusing to implement. Uh, But in many cases, you know, Sometimes people choose the wrong activity correction factor for them, and even if they choose the right one, uh, these correction factors are not precise enough to give a truly individualized estimate that will be highly tailored to the individual. So these types of calorie calculators are a good starting point, but you really do need to refine the estimate from there, and they they don't offer the level of individualization that you would consider sufficient for long-term tracking or Calorie target purposes. And then another thing to keep in mind is, you know, even if you get a very good target to begin with, whether you're gaining weight or losing weight, energy expenditure does tend to change pretty considerably over time. And so even if you start with a perfect calorie target from using one of these uh, calorie calculators over time, it will become less perfect and it will become more unsuitable for your goal. And there's no built-in mechanism to actually account for that. Um, And and what, there's a a recent paper by Rodriguez and colleagues out of Grant Tinsley's lab, I've mentioned it on the show before, what they found was that these um, validated equations do, they do okay when we just take someone at a, you know, at their natural kind of typical body weight, they're at neutral energy balance, not gaining or losing any weight at the time. These equations do Okay. Uh, specifically for resting energy expenditure. But as those individuals start to gain or lose weight, there are going to be some adaptive changes in their their resting energy expenditure as it's measured in the lab. and the equations do a very poor job of actually capturing that adaptive change. Uh, so these types of uh, equation based estimates, these calorie calculator estimates for your energy needs, at baseline, they could be okay. they could be, kind of bad for you because they're not sufficiently individualized, but even if they start out really good for you, they will probably have a tendency to get worse over time as your energy expenditure changes. So in summary, diet tracking can be a very, very helpful and very, very effective tool for achieving your fitness goals or your health-related goals. But it works best when you're approaching it the right way. Uh, So you need to actually do something with the information from your diet tracking. And when you reach that step of doing something with it, uh, you need to make sure that you are aiming for a a set of nutritional targets that is actually individualized and appropriate for you. Um, So now I want to talk about a few things you can do to make diet tracking as effective and As enjoyable as possible. Uh, First of all, I would encourage people to go back and listen to past episodes of the podcast about goal setting, motivation, and behavior change. Uh, I think those help people, in my opinion, develop and establish a very good mental framework for how diet tracking is going to fit into their overarching goal hierarchy uh, and how they can set themselves up to sustain motivation and uh, persistent changes to their behavior. You know, if you just dive right into diet tracking, but you don't have a good mental framework for why you're doing it and how you're going to do it, uh, I think it's very possible that the whatever success you uh, experience there could potentially be short-lived. So if you want to maximize your ability to set yourself up for success, uh, you want to do some serious thinking about goal setting, motivation, and behavior change. Uh, Number two, you want to use a tool that can actually help you refine your diet targets effectively um, so that you're aiming for targets that are right for you. Uh, So like I said, there are many different strategies that people use that lead to uh, relatively generic or poorly individualized calorie targets. And ultimately, this is going to um, really threaten the utility of diet tracking. Um, You know, diet tracking is great for helping you see what you're doing and equipping you with the ability to make changes so that your diet will be more individualized to your needs and be more compatible to your goals. So you want to use tools that can help you, um, you know, refine your diet targets, your calorie targets and macro targets, uh, the most effective way possible That so that your diet is as individualized and pers- personalized and customized as it can possibly be. Uh, so obviously... I'm very biased, but we at the Stronger by Science podcast recommend Macrofactor as a tool that if you're just starting out, it can use estimates to get you started with the best possible general estimate for your calorie needs based on your goal and your characteristics. But very quickly over time, over the first two or three weeks, it's going to use your body weight data and nutrition data to really refine its understanding of your daily energy expenditure. So that you can get a calorie target and a set of macro targets um, that that will be very very compatible with your goals in terms of your your rate of weight loss, what you're trying to achieve, and it will also be compatible with your preferences uh, in terms of what types of dietary um, preferences you gravitate toward. You know whether you like more carbohydrate, more fat, higher protein, lower protein, etc. So number three, you want to use a tool that is efficient and flexible. And again, we we design macro factor with that in mind, obviously, but the reason there is you want to minimize friction in the process of diet tracking. There are a lot of folks who recognize the utility and the value of diet tracking, so they begin it, but then they notice that the friction in the actual process of tracking their diet uh, kind of dissuades them from participating in that habit or behavior over time. So they're not doing the behavior as consistently as they intended. Uh, The habit doesn't really form because there is this level of inconsistency in their tracking practices. Um, So if you're using a tool that's very efficient and very flexible, it can accommodate uh, whatever you're trying to use it for, and it can make the process efficient enough that you facilitate habit formation in a way that is not overly strenuous and doesn't really just tax your ability to will your way through a bunch of inefficient and tedious processes. Uh, number four, you want to use a tool that does not thwart your psychological needs. Um, so when we talk about self-determination theory, we talk about competence, relatedness, and autonomy. You want to use a tool that's not making you feel super um, incompetent, you know, making you feel like you're you're messing up your diet all the time and that you you keep screwing up and you're not making satisfactory progress. You want to use a tool that is supportive rather than punitive in terms of the feedback that it gives, um, and even just the basic design elements. You know, you don't want to open up an app that all of the design elements are telling you that you've messed up in 30 different ways today. Um, you know, it's it's good for an app to tell you where you can have areas for improvement, but you don't want to feel like every time you open your phone, you're being punished or scolded, obviously. Um And then when it comes to autonomy, like I said, you want a tool that's going to be flexible enough that you really feel like you're in charge. You're in control. You're pulling the levers to make this thing work, uh, which is going to facilitate intrinsic motivation because you are the person who is actually dictating where the path is heading. And you you want to make sure that this tool, in addition to not thwarting your psychological needs, you want to just make sure that it's not going to stifle your self-efficacy or your motivation. You know, there are a lot of Diet tracking tools that have these very, uh, very harsh and very demotivating um, elements that really detract from your sense of self uh, self efficacy, the the general intrinsic belief that you actually can accomplish what you're intending to accomplish here. And then the fifth thing uh, that you want to focus on to make your diet tracking as effective and as enjoyable as possible is that you want to practice what we call flexible cognitive restraint. Um, Now, this has been discussed on the show many times, but the short version is flexible cognitive restraint is the opposite of rigid cognitive restraint. And with rigid cognitive restraint, uh, you are likely to dichotomize outcomes and and make determinations accordingly. So someone who is tracking their diet with rigid cognitive restraint might say, I have a calorie target and I'm either going to hit it perfectly or I'm going to fail. And the more that you have, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, fail, 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 you know, if you're setting this really narrow margin for success and you're dichotomizing everything you do in very simple terms as either success or failure, you're probably going to stack up a lot of failures and it's probably going to be very demotivating. It's probably going to threaten your self-efficacy generally not what you want to do. And it also forces you into rigid protocols that are not very flexible or sustainable. So if you have a specific set diet with a set calorie target and totally specified food sources at every single meal, how are you going to go out to dinner with a family member or go to a birthday party or a work event? Are you going to have the flexibility to deviate from the set plan? Or Every time you deviate, are you going to categorize that entire day as a failure? If you're categorizing just the smallest events as uh, categorical failures, that's probably not going to be good for your long-term success with whatever goal you're approaching. So flexible cognitive restraint is the opposite of that. We try not to dichotomize things as pass or fail, you know, success or total failure. What we're trying to do there is say, I have a calorie target, and every day... I'd like to get close to that. And some days I'll be closer than others, but generally speaking over time I want to be pretty close to it most days of the week, most days of the month, most days of the year. And you might also another example would be I've got a calorie target, but I've also got a target for carbohydrate, fat and protein. I would love to get close to my my specific targets for carbs, fats and protein, but there're going to be days where I say, you know what, I just want to get enough protein and make sure that i'm not going way off with my overall calorie target the exact numbers carb fat and protein we can have some flexibility and let those fall where they may now i don't want to consistently have a very extreme uh macronutrient distribution that's incompatible with my goals but if most of the time i'm doing pretty good with my calories and my protein i can let the other stuff fall in place and have faith that i'm making really big strides toward my goals okay so what you want to do is practice this flexible cognitive restraint so that you have some wiggle room to have minor slip-ups that don't become massive failures or snowball into prolonged instances of you know non-adherence to your diet or to your goals. Uh, and there are some specific strategies that you can implement that, that lean on flexible cognitive restraint. So you can do things like a planned hedonic deviation where on a particular day of the week or a particular day of the month, you are kind of allocating some extra calories to that day, allocating a little bit of extra flexibility so that you can, um, you know, enjoy a day of eating that is atypical relative to the norm. But because it's part of your plan, you know that you're still feeling good, still, um, still working toward the goals that you've set for yourself. Another one would be a slack with a cost strategy. And what we could call this in the context of dieting is basically a calorie reserve. So it's easiest to explain this in the context of weight loss. You might say, you know, every day I'm going to shoot for a calorie target of 1,900 calories, but every week I've got this uh, this extra little calorie reserve that is just these 500 calories that are floating around. Now, if I want to tap into that reserve, I can do it but I know that the more I tap into it, the more it's going to, broadly speaking, slow my rate of weight loss, right? So you're going 1,900 calories a day, but there might be a day where you say, you know what, I'm just gonna take that whole calorie reserve, and today, instead of 1,900, we're gonna do 2,400. Or you might notice that there are a couple instances throughout the week where you feel like snacking, and so maybe you add uh, a a 200-calorie snack there, a 100-calorie snack there, you don't use the entire reserve, but you have not, you know, gone beyond the reserve. So the idea is that you've got this calorie target that's compatible with your goal. You've got this extra reserve of calories that you can tap into as needed if you wish to. Um, but there is still a finite limit to how many calories are in that reserve budget, and you can allocate the, the calories within that budget uh, however you see fit. Uh, so there are a lot of different ways that you can approach flexible cognitive restraint, but generally speaking, it's a pretty good idea for dieting. Um, all right, so in the show notes, I am going to link some helpful resources. Um, one is going to be uh, an article about goal setting, another about behavior change, and then another is going to be about cheat meals. And within that, that article, I talk about planned hedonic deviation, slack with a cost, Um, And I talk a little bit more about diet motivation more broadly in in that article. So now that I've discussed some psychological elements of diet tracking, I think it's important to address a a really critical question, um, which is, does diet tracking or calorie counting cause eating disorders? This is a really common concern, and a lot of people worry that if they tell someone to track their food intake, their their calories, or their macros— you know, perhaps it might be a very risky thing to tell someone, in the sense that it could cause an eating disorder or, or you know, some degree of unfavorable, disordered eating behaviors or habits. Um, now, this concern is largely driven by cross-sectional research reporting correlations. Right. So, what they tend to find in these cross-sectional studies is when they look at a group of individuals with eating disorders and a group of individuals without eating disorders, the Prevalence of diet tracking seems to be higher in the group of people who have eating disorders. And that's informative and it's important to know, but it actually doesn't tell us what we're really interested in. So, our research question or our practical question is not do people with eating disorders track their intakes more frequently than people without eating disorders? Our real question here is if I tell someone to track their diet, am I going to cause an eating disorder for them? And so, when we look at this correlational cross sectional research, it doesn't actually tell us about the causative chain of events. You know, it's very possible that the prevalence of diet tracking is higher among people with eating disorders uh, because having an eating disorder makes you more interested in closely observing and manipulating dietary factors. So, it's possible that having an eating disorder Make someone more likely to track their diet intake um but of course the the opposite could be true theoretically that you know the reason we see this high prevalence of tracking among people with eating disorders is because they started tracking and it gave them an eating disorder so in order to really figure out the causative nature of this relationship you know does does diet tracking cause eating disorders Uh, Do eating disorders cause diet tracking? uh, Or is there a much more complicated relationship between the two? In order to get to the bottom of that, we want to lean on studies that are prospective in nature. And ideally, we'd love to lean on randomized controlled trials. And fortunately, uh, there was a 2021 study by, by Hahn and colleagues which investigated this specific question in the form of a prospective randomized controlled trial. So basically... They recruited a bunch of people at baseline who were not diet tracking, randomly assigned them to groups. One group tracked their diet and their calories and their macros. The other group did not. And they were able to see what was the actual effect caused by instructing someone to track their diet, their calories, and their macros uh, for a month's time. So for this study, they recruited 200 female college students who, like I said, were not tracking their diet at baseline, and they randomly assigned... Half of them were going to track their their diet in a phone app. Half of them were just going to continue doing their normal thing. Uh, the individuals in this study were not given a goal. It was not like, "Hey, lose five pounds or maintain your body weight or gain five pounds." They just said, "Hey, track what you eat and drink." There's no goal pertaining to weight loss or weight gain. Um, but they just uh, they gave them an estimate of their energy needs based on a validated equation, um, one of the ones that that I addressed previously, just kind of put in some basic information, and it pops out, here's how many calories you probably burn on a daily basis. So they knew their estimated energy expenditure, but they were not told to actively pursue any specific goal pertaining to weight loss or weight gain. Um, Now, I mentioned that they sampled female college students, and this is a specific population where we tend to see higher than average prevalence of disordered eating symptoms and eating disorder diagnoses. So it's important to recognize that before enrolling people in this study, they did a a they used an eating uh, an eating disorder questionnaire and that allowed them to um, exclude participants who already had pretty concerning levels of eating disorder symptoms at baseline. So they're able to see you know people who are already you know kind of in a, a range that would be, a bit concerning in terms of eating disorder symptoms, they were able to exclude them before putting them into the study. And you might consider that to be uh, a limitation in the sense that the people most likely to develop an eating disorder from tracking uh, were excluded, but it's really the only ethical way to do this type of study. Um, you know, you, you cannot do a study where you say, hey, we want to know if this causes a, a pretty serious Uh, you know, a very serious medical condition, and we think you're predisposed to that medical condition, so we'd love to see what happens. You know, that's not an ethical thing that you can do uh, in the world of human research. So it was absolutely a, a critically necessary step because eating disorders are not something to be, you know, not something to take lightly. So they were able to identify on the front end people who were already very highly predisposed to eating disorders and to make sure that they were not put Uh, In a situation where those eating disorder symptoms could be um, exacerbated or amplified by the intervention. So, in terms of the results, uh, the researchers did not observe any significant negative effects on eating disorder risk, anxiety, depressive symptoms, body satisfaction, quality of life, eating behaviors, physical activity, screen time, or other forms of self related uh, or weight related self monitoring. Uh, So what they found was, you know, for individuals who were not already very highly predisposed to eating disorders at baseline, um, you know, telling them to track their dietary intakes with a phone app did not negatively impact psychological outcomes or apparent eating disorder risk. Uh, On the other hand, I should acknowledge, as I noted previously, the mere act of tracking one's diet didn't really do much in terms of other health-related behaviors or outcomes. So... Much as we would expect, just telling someone, hey, write down what you eat and drink, it did not lead to some spontaneous improvement in health or fitness level or anything like that. Uh, But the bright side here was that diet tracking did not induce, uh, did not appear to induce any negative psychological outcomes or any amplification of eating disorder risk. And so, what that tells us is diet tracking can be extremely helpful but merely tracking is not going to get the job done. You need to make sure that you're tracking for a reason, you're tracking with purpose, and you're actually doing something with the numbers that you receive from the the practice of dietary tracking. Um, You know, diet tracking, based on the research we have, does not seem to cause eating disorders uh, or symptoms of eating disorders. However, um, like I said, that randomized controlled trial did exclude people at baseline had a heightened risk of eating disorder development and so i think it's really important that before someone chooses to track their diet that they think very closely about their perceived susceptibility to eating disorders uh, and the risk of eating disorder symptoms if i had someone who was you know if i was conversing with someone in an informal way obviously i'm not a, a clinician or or a medical doctor so i couldn't give this type of advice but if i was informally conversing with a friend who said yeah i've been thinking about tracking my diet but you know here are six very concerning you know diet related behaviors i already have you know if, if i'm talking to someone and i get the sense that they might already have an undiagnosed eating disorder or are just on the verge in terms of a, a really heightened predisposition i would i would encourage them to speak with a professional before they embarked uh on into the practice of tracking their diet so predisposition at baseline is really important to have a um to keep in mind before someone considers diet tracking but the research would tell us that for people who are not already predisposed to eating disorders or for people who don't already basically have an undiagnosed eating disorder um, the act of diet tracking does not seem to spontaneously cause disordered eating or clinically relevant eating disorders um once again if you want to further minimize the risk of negative, of having a negative psychological experience, there are some best practices that you can lean on. And again, this is coming uh, from an educational perspective. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a psychological, uh, psych- I'm not a medical professional trained in psychology. But based on the research, it looks like if you're trying to avoid the likelihood of a negative psychological experience with diet tracking, You probably want to implement flexible cognitive restraint you probably want to use a tool that's not going to fuel any shame or any catastrophizing if you slip up with your diet targets and you probably want to use a tool that's not going to thwart your basic psychological needs or stifle your sense of self-efficacy and your sense of motivation as the first and only fitness podcast with a steadfast commitment to traditional family values we know that protecting families is important. Right you are, Eric. But I will note, there are some things that are even more important than protecting traditional family values and the moral fabric of our society. That's right, Greg. It's important to protect families, but it's even more important to protect corporate entities. That's why I joined the advisory board for the Sports Nutrition Association, along with trusted fitness pros like Danny Lennon and distrusted arch-nemeses like Eric Helms. The sports nutrition association is the home of sports nutrition they are dedicated to ensuring the sustainable prosperity of the sports nutrition profession and they offer a unique pathway to robust insurance coverage for your sports nutrition business simply put it's the best way to protect the corporate entities that are closest to your heart and i should note if you're an individual sole proprietor uh providing sports nutrition services and not a corporate entity, the Sports Nutrition Association can help you out as well. That is correct. All insurance plans are handled individually on a case-by-case basis, regardless of how your sports nutrition business is structured. But even if you don't want insurance coverage, SNA membership comes with a bunch of other perks and advantages. The Sports Nutrition Association is the only global professional sports body that has a defined standard For sports nutrition scope of practice for its members this ensures that members maintain high standards in their practice so that the public can always trust in the quality associated with the services of an accredited sports nutritionist through the sports nutrition association if you already meet their minimum education requirements you can become an accredited sports nutritionist today Uh, if you don't meet those education requirements yet you can enroll in the Certificate Program in Applied Sports Nutrition. That allows you to become a provisionally accredited member upon completion. To learn more about the Sports Nutrition Association, head over to www.sportsnutritionassociation.com today. Today's episode is sponsored by the Sports Nutrition Association and Stronger by Science LLC sincerely appreciates their support. So, that's all great. We we know that diet tracking can be helpful, but you got to do it right, and you got to make sure you're doing it in a way that's going to be good for your your general psychological temperament. Um, but a relatively newer thing that, or it's not new, but it's getting more popular, more common in the fitness world. You might have heard that mindful eating is an alternative to diet tracking that more directly embraces self compassion and might be a better alternative to diet tracking. Um, there, there are a lot of misconceptions about mindful eating, and so as we're talking about diet tracking, I wanted to uh, cover some of those misconceptions and talk about what mindful eating actually is. So one of the most common questions that comes up is, you know, can mindful eating and macro tracking, can they actually coexist? Uh, and a lot of folks will tell you no, but I very strongly disagree with that perspective, and in this segment, I'll tell you exactly why. But before we get there, um, it's important to discuss uh, what mindful eating actually is. Uh, it's become very, it's become increasingly popular in recent years. In many cases, it is presented as a strategy that is inherently linked, or perhaps even synonymous with intuitive eating. Uh, in some cases, it's framed as being an alternative to structured diets or macro tracking, and not just an alternative, but an alternative that is mutually exclusive. You have to either do mindful eating or do a structured diet or do diet tracking. Um, So let's first talk about what mindful eating actually is. Um, It is not the same thing as intuitive eating. Um, They are often implemented in combination with one another, but they don't necessarily need to be. So uh, there was a great systematic review By Greider and colleagues, which I'm going to link in the show notes, where they they define both of these terms. Uh, So they defined intuitive eating as eating with an intentional focus on physiological hunger and satiety cues rather than external cues to guide intake. Um, and, And they further elaborate that external cues could include emotions, food availability, seeing or smelling food, social settings where eating is encouraged serving sizes, or food packaging. Um, and they also mentioned that intuitive eating it basically seeks to train an individual to focus on responding to their physical sensations in order to determine their body's needs. So rather than going off of a script for what they ought to be eating, they're kind of taking stock of their physical sensations and then making a determination about what they ought to be eating based on their body's needs. Now, mindful eating is neither the same nor the opposite of intuitive eating Uh, it is a completely separate completely distinct topic and distinct concept altogether Uh, so mindful eating is not about what you eat or when you eat or why you eat mindful eating is very explicitly about how you eat Uh, so it's not about how you diet but it's about how you approach the process of actually ingesting foods and beverages so Greider and colleagues uh, in that systematic review, reviewed, they define mindful eating as the act of paying attention to food during consumption and having awareness and focusing on the experience with food. Uh, there's an alternative d- definition provided in a paper by Joseph B. Nelson, which I'll link, um, and that definition is paying attention to our food on purpose, moment by moment, without judgment. Uh, which frames mindful eating as an approach to food that focuses on an individual's sensual awareness of the food and their experience of the food. Uh, And then Nelson goes on to clarify that the intention of mindful eating is to help individuals savor the moment and the food and encourage their full presence for the eating experience. So as you can see, uh, these concepts are not mutually exclusive, but they are very distinct. Uh, Intuitive eating is largely focused on leaning on hunger and satiety cues to make a determination about what, when, and how much you should eat. Uh, In contrast, mindful eating, like I said, is about how you approach the actual act of eating, the process of consuming a food or a beverage. And so I think a, a natural question to ask is, well, then how exactly does mindful eating work? Like, What would that look like in practice? And the General idea, so there's actually a step-by-step example in the paper by by Joseph Nelson that I linked uh, in the show notes here. But the general idea for the actual implementation of mindful eating is that it's a very focused form of eating. So the purpose is to eat in a non-distracted manner while very intentionally directing your your, your full attention, your full focus to a number of very pertinent focal points during the eating process, during the act of eating. So, for example, as you're sitting down to eat something, you might begin by taking stock of of what your current emotional experience is. Uh, You know, am I feeling content, happy, sad, stressed, anxious, etc.? And you might take a moment to consider how that might impact what you are choosing to eat uh, how much you, you're putting on your plate you know you you want to take stock of that and think you know just from an observational perspective how is that emotional state impacting this experience of eating uh, and how is it impacting my dietary habits in this moment so you, you'll you take stock of your emotional experience takes stock of how your body is feeling you'll also take stock of some of the characteristics of the food uh you know so you might think about uh how it feels how it smells um, how uh, you know how it looks? You know, really immersing yourself in the experience of eating and taking stock of you know the the overall broader experience of of consuming this food, and you might even take it a step deeper. You know, so um, when you hear about mindful eating being described from people who are uh, practitioners of Buddhism, uh, you'll often hear people talking about thinking about where the food comes from. You know, and not just what restaurant did you get it from or what grocery store, but what does the process look like for this food to simply come to be? Uh, What does it look like for, you know, if you're talking about a raisin, you know, for the soil and the rain and the sunlight to combine to actually grow a grape and then for someone to pick that grape and for that grape to be made into a raisin and for that raisin to find its way? to your grocery store, and for you to do a transaction to acquire that, that raisin. You know, there's this whole chain of events that leads a food to the eating experience. And with mindful eating, you're just kind of immersing yourself in the experience of eating and looking at it from all angles. Um, and it's very possible that this approach to eating and even this just general approach to thinking feels very unfamiliar to you and i think it's important to recognize the context of of mindful eating and some of its basic origins so mindful eating is derived from the broader concept of mindfulness um and john kabat-zinn defi- defines mindfulness as paying attention in a particular way on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally and the uh the the, the roots of this kind of general contemporary secular approach to mindfulness practice are mostly traced back to Buddhist teachings. Um, that That's not the only kind of root origin of some of these mindfulness concepts, uh, but like I said, the, the kind of contemporary secular mindfulness practices that are becoming more popular often claim to be, you know, directly linked back to uh, practices in Buddhism, and more specifically, in the school or the tradition of Zen Buddhism. So, a deep dive into Buddhist philosophies and perspectives, certainly beyond the scope of this nutrition podcast episode. Um, but if you wish to develop what I would call a deeper and richer understanding of mindful eating and you're you hear about the concept and you say this fully doesn't make sense to me, um it might be worth digging in to some ideas of Zen Buddhism, and as you dig into the concept of mindfulness as it pertains to Zen Buddhism you start to gain uh more perspective on on how mindful eating came to be and and what the potential benefits might actually be um now if you look into the zen buddhist tradition mindfulness is applied to much more than eating um you know there are you know in zen Buddhism, you'll, you'll hear people talk about mindful eating but you'll hear them talk about mindful walking mindful breathing mindful sitting uh Mindful dishwashing, and you know everything in between. So mindfulness practice is always anchored by mindfulness of something, and that something can be whatever you happen to be doing. So, in other words, I'm kind of paraphrasing here based on my own perspective. Um, You know, I am not a Buddhist philosopher or a theologian, so just my personal perspective is that mindfulness is viewed more as a a state of mind and a quality of focus that can be applied to virtually all aspects of somebody's life Um, and so within that context we can see mindful eating or mindfulness of eating as being merely one small application of this broader set of mindfulness practices so probably more than you bargain for uh getting into a nutrition podcast hearing a little bit about buddhist philosophy but i think it's important if we're talking about mindful eating and it comes from a general sense of mindfulness which you know, has roots linking back to Zen Buddhism, I think it's, it's informative to kind of track things back to those root origins to gain a better understanding of why would I sit down and think about where a raisin came from? Uh, why would I, why would I perceive value in the process of eating with a higher level, higher level of focus and attention on, you know, the act of eating? So that's where some of this stuff comes from. The question that a lot of people have on their mind when they hear about mindful eating is, is this a weight loss strategy? And, and by definition, the answer is no. Uh, you know, it, it is not a strategy that was designed to induce weight loss. It was not a strategy that was designed to enhance adherence to a low-calorie diet or anything like that. Uh, however, some folks seem to be more frequently these days suggesting that you cannot use mindful eating in conjunction with a diet or an intentional weight loss plan, and I hope that by giving some background on mindful eating, you you can intuitively see that that's categorically untrue. Uh, the this act of eating in a very focused way, with a great deal of a, of in, of attention on the eating process, can be applied in a wide variety of eating scenarios and contexts. So, um, when when we think about the idea of Is mindfulness for weight loss? The answer is obviously no. There was nothing in this background information that would make it seem to be the case. Uh, And if you look at the systematic review I mentioned by Greider, they mention when talking about mindful eating, the intent is not weight loss or to restrict intake, um, but it's believed that if one is mindful of their food experience and consumption, the result could be that awareness of how a food is making someone feel you know, that, that awareness would increase and, and that would then lead to the selection of healthier options. So as you're more aware of the eating process and how you're feeling throughout and how eating is uh, ultimately fueling your body, uh, you might become more aware uh, of the food selections that you're making and it could lead to an alteration of dietary habits. Uh, along those lines, Nelson, in the the other peer-reviewed paper I mentioned, Nelson states, the purpose of mindful eating is not to lose weight, Although it's highly likely that those who adopt the style of eating will lose weight, so weight loss is not the intention. Uh, you know, drastic overhaul uh, of dietary habits is not the intention, uh, but there is some possibility that uh, when someone does mindful eating, they might notice that they lose some weight, or they might notice that they start making slightly different uh, choices pertaining to their food, uh, their food intake, and their dietary habits. Now, if we move beyond the peer-reviewed scientific literature and branch out into lay press books, uh, we get even more information about the relationship between mindful eating and weight loss. Uh, So like I said, mindful eating is not a weight loss strategy, but there is room for mindful eating in the context of a weight loss strategy. So if you are trying to lose weight, if you're trying to adhere to a low-calorie diet, you absolutely can implement mindful eating as part of that process. Um, So to to provide a little more context there, um, one of my favorite books about mindful eating is called Savor, and I actually have it right here with me. And Savor is written by Thich Nhat Hanh and Dr. Lillian Chang. Now, Thich Nhat Hanh is what was a world-renowned Zen master and Buddhist monk Uh, he passed away a little over a year ago, uh, approximately a year ago. I think it's been a little over a year. Um, But according to Wikipedia, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh is broadly recognized as the father of mindfulness. He played a very big role in kind of spreading ideas about mindfulness uh, to the Western world, Um, and and is just a tremendously well-respected Buddhist monk and Zen master. And Actually, I, I've, I have many of his books. I probably have two dozen books that he's written. Uh, so I, I think very, very highly of Thich Nhat Hanh in terms of being uh, just a tremendous source of information pertaining to Buddhism and mindfulness. The other author is Dr. Lillian Cheng. Uh, Dr. Cheng is a registered dietitian and is also the director of mindfulness research and practice at Harvard's Department of Nutrition. Now, I'm not trying to uh, commit the appeal to authority fallacy. Like, I'm not going to say, hey, if they say it, it is absolutely factual and true and cannot be contested. But if you're looking for a general understanding of what mindful eating is supposed to be, uh, I think their perspectives carry a little bit more weight than your average influencer. You know, so the reason I bring this up is because you'll see people, you know, with some random Instagram account saying, you may not do mindful eating and weight loss at the same time or you may not do mindful eating and caloric restriction at the same time. And if I want to know what mindful eating can be used for, I I will value the perspectives of someone who's referred to as the father of mindfulness and someone who is the director of mindfulness research and practice at a, you know, uh, a prestigious organization. Doesn't mean everything they say is always right in every possible context, but If you're looking for perspectives on what mindful eating ought to be, I I think that their word carries a a tremendous amount of weight um, and and certainly have a great deal of uh, appreciation for their expertise in this specific area. So uh, in this book, you know, you might wonder, does it shun the idea of combining intentional weight loss with mindful eating? Does it offer mindful eating as a totally contradictory alternative to dietary uh, restriction? The answer is absolutely not. Um, You know, for example, uh, one section of chapter five, there's actually a subheading that says, to control your weight, calories matter. Okay, so um, there are numerous instances within this book where they talk about the utility of mindful eating within the context of energy restriction or weight loss. Now, they don't say that mindful eating is designed for that, it's merely the idea that these two things can be compatible. Um, So, that's good. We've established that uh, mindful eating can be used in conjunction with weight loss. The two are compatible, but that doesn't tell us if mindful eating actually causes or induces weight loss. And when it comes to the scientific literature in this area, we have to accept some less than ideal conditions, uh, specifically when it comes to definitions and interventions. So if you want to have enough information here to really sort through in a meaningful informative way you have to lean on this broad category of literature where interventions i think have been kind of blurred together and not very well defined and distinguished from one another so you're going to see stuff where mindful eating is part of some other mindfulness intervention so they might do some mindfulness sitting meditation combined with mindful eating strategies and all this this combined intervention is kind of rolled into one uh also you'll see interventions that are actually intuitive eating interventions that include a mindful eating component. And so if we're looking at these systematic reviews and meta-analyses on whether or not mindful eating induces weight loss, we have to accept the fact that when we talk about these interventions, there are some other elements that kind of muddy the waters where it is not specifically mindful eating, but is mindfulness practices that involve mindful eating and perhaps even a little bit of intuitive eating in the mix. So I agree it's a little messy. That That's a caveat I acknowledge on the front end. So when we look at systematic reviews and meta-analyses that try to determine if some of these mindfulness-focused eating strategies uh, actually induce or facilitate weight loss, the evidence is mixed. So there is a meta-analysis by our tiles and colleagues where they found relatively positive effects in terms of facilitating weight loss. There was also... Uh, a systematic review by Katterman and colleagues, where they actually found inconclusive effects on weight loss from this kind of blurred cluster of strategies. You know, when we talk about these systematic reviews and meta-analyses, like I said, it's kind of mindfulness-based eating strategies with like a little hint of intuitive eating in the mix. Generally speaking, there's some evidence suggesting that, um, you know, there there could be a positive effect on weight loss other evidence suggesting that the the, um, the effects seem to be a little bit mixed. And I think some of those mixed results ultimately come down to two things. First of all, when you're blurring these interventions together, it, it can add some degree of variability in terms of what the systematic review or meta-analysis is actually investigating. Um, you know, So I, I would expect some kind of mixed findings when the actual intervention is so uh, loosely defined and implemented. And the other thing is, with any type of mindfulness intervention, uh, the implementation is really key. Um, it, it's really critical w- with any type of mindfulness-based intervention to make sure that you're presenting it in a way that's very accessible, a way that the participants in the trial or the program are, are really going to buy into it uh, and really embrace some of the ideas, because we're really talking about we're talking about perspective here and cognitive processes at the participant level. So. If you're not able to deliver the intervention in a way that really effectively reaches the individual and kind of conveys a message uh, of how this is supposed to really work effectively, you could find uh, instances where one mindfulness eating or one mindful eating intervention is far more effective than another mindful eating intervention, purely on the basis of just being implemented in a much more skillful and much more effective way. So, in general, it looks like mindful eating could possibly facilitate weight loss, um, but probably is not going to cause a lot of weight loss on its own uh, in the majority of cases. So it could be used as part of a weight loss strategy, but I would not uh, adopt mindful eating and expect that just doing that alone is going to cause some precipitous degree of of, of weight loss. And if you're wondering why uh, mindful eating might facilitate uh, or be a nice... Um, kind of adjunct intervention that that can help out with with weight loss, there are a few mechanisms that could be at play. So generally speaking, mindful eating um, encourages a slower rate of eating, right? So like I mentioned, as you're eating, you're taking stock of your environment. You're taking stock of your emotions. You're taking stock of your physical sensations. You're taking stock of the characteristics of the food, how it's making you feel as you put it in your mouth and chew it and swallow it and as you eat more and more, you know there, there's so much uh, perception going on, so many instances to stop and and really immerse yourself in the experience. And so what that means is typically you're going to eat more slowly, right? You're not just kind of distracted and just kind of you know shoveling you know spoonful after spoonful. you're really taking the time to savor it and to think about it and to experience it more fully. And so when when we slow down our eating rate, a number of things can happen. Uh, first of all, eating more slowly can influence the, the kinetics of the processes related to our satiety-related hormones. Right, so satiety and hunger are impacted by some pretty intricate hormone systems. And when we start eating a meal, there is an endocrine response that involves, uh, you know, increased levels of these satiety hormones which make their way to key structures uh, in the brain, which convey the message of satiety, which then influences our desire to continue eating. And so what that means is, if we slow down our rate of eating, we can theoretically give that cascade of processes more time to work. And, and so uh, the the process of getting the message, okay, now we are eating, and there's this influx of calories and this physical food matter, And, you know, then satiety hormones are going to increase and they're going to work their way to the brain centers where they actually interact with key receptors and kind of cause this cascade of events where the brain starts to understand, oh yeah, I'm actually, I'm actually quite, quite full at the moment and and quite happy to discontinue eating. So by slowing down the rate of eating, it leaves a little bit more room for that cascade of events to happen uh, such that we might start to notice satiety increasing uh, before we have reached a very, very high level of caloric intake in that meal. So that's one mechanism. A second mechanism that could be at play here when we look at mindful eating facilitating weight loss is the fact that a slower rate of eating can influence our memory related to food ingestion and can also influence our sensory experience of the meal. You know, So we have more time during the meal where we are really fully experiencing the flavors and the aromas of the meal, we are kind of mentally coding that as a greater sense of satisfaction and a more prolonged uh, experience in which we are quite satisfied from a sensory uh, perspective. And so there, there is some interesting research indicating that when you have someone slow down a meal, there's almost, we can think of it as a higher ratio of satis- uh, sensory satisfaction relative to calories ingested. and it also seems that there is a persistent effect of that that seems to drag on throughout the day, where if we have this slower eating experience that leads to greater sensory satisfaction per unit calorie, we we kind of code that as a deeper memory of, you know, at 3 pm we, we still kind of remember, oh man, I had that really lovely, uh, very satisfying meal just a few hours ago at noon. Uh, And it might, at least it appears, to influence our dietary behaviors and choices in that uh, period of time following that meal. So uh, that research to me is not fully fleshed out. I'm I'm going to admit that on the front end. But if we're looking for explanations of why mindful eating might lead to, um, you know, perhaps a slightly easier weight loss process or even perhaps uh, an unintentional modest reduction in body weight it's possible that that amplified sensory experience might impact our memory of the meal in a way that persists throughout the day and does influence some of our dietary choices and behaviors and then a third um, mechanism that comes to mind is that mindful eating strategies also tend to facilitate what we would call an acceptance-based approach to weight management hunger management And dietary restraint so um in fact like just to kind of reinforce that point there's a really great published review about acceptance-based weight control strategies and it it discusses mindfulness as a key component of this acceptance-based approach and uh sometimes with with well always as far as i know with research papers you're going to have to specify a number of keywords And mindfulness was actually one of the the five keywords that was selected for the article. So that's just kind of a a direct demonstration of how critical mindfulness is when we talk about these acceptance-based strategies. So if you're wondering what an acceptance-based approach would actually be in this context, it's actually a very intuitive concept. So if you're trying to use an acceptance-based approach to weight control, Um, you want to really focus on your thoughts, your feelings, and your bodily sensations when it comes to the behaviors pertaining to weight control. So for for our case, we'd be talking about eating, uh, or you might be talking about hunger sensations between meals or something like that. And the the idea of an acceptance-based approach is that you're taking stock of these experiences, thoughts, feelings, uh, these bodily sensations, and instead of trying to suppress them or avoid them, um, or kind of catastrophizing when a negative one arises, what we're trying to do is kind of change our relationship to these experiences and sensations, such that we can um, basically accept that they are part of the process, and we can almost em- embrace the fact that we-, we understand that these various sensations will-, will come and go throughout our weight control process. So to lean on a more concrete example here, we can think about hunger, Uh, and how it would look if we adopted an acceptance-based approach. Now, typically, you know, a lot of dieters really do fear hunger, and they aggressively avoid hunger, and sometimes they do catastrophize a little bit when hunger is present. It's very natural to to become hungry and say, oh man, if I'm hungry now, how am I going to feel in three hours? Or how am I going to do this diet if I'm already feeling hungry at 180 pounds and I'm trying to get to 160, you know? Uh so it's very understandable why we get to those points where hunger induces some degree of fear or concern or worry um but if we adopt a more acceptance based approach we can mindfully acknowledge the presence of hunger without kind of falling into those conditioned responses we can we can experience that sensation and say i notice and i acknowledge that hunger is present i accept That hunger is going to be part of my experience as i pursue this goal but i'm not going to let it take the reins of my perceptions and my thoughts and my worries i'm not going to let it derail me um, from an emotional perspective nor am i going to let it derail me from my uh my actual dietary goals and objectives today so we can mindfully accept the fact that hunger is present without giving it the power to completely take control and take the reins. And we're not trying to suppress it. That's a very different thing. So sometimes people will see hunger arising or they will notice hunger arising and they say, I need to defeat the hunger or suppress the hunger um, or find a way to rectify the hunger and make it go away. With an acceptance-based approach, you can say, oh, I see that there's some hunger here and that's okay. Uh, I expected that this would be coming uh, to some extent. And... This hunger does not have unlimited power over me and my feelings and the way I act moving forward. So it's not about suppressing it. It's not about overcoming it. It's about accepting it. We can kind of think about it as receiving severely negative feedback from someone whose opinion we don't necessarily value all that much. You know, We could say, okay, I accept that you think I did a terrible job. Uh, I can acknowledge that, but ultimately that's not going to ruin my day or alter the way that I move forward with the way I do what I do. Uh, so, another example would be a food craving, right? So, food cravings for a dieter can be very stressful. Um, you know, we can notice a food craving arising and say, oh, I need to do something about this. This craving has now kind of taken the reins and and dictated that now I need to either suppress or satisfy this craving, but there is another option. If we adopt a very acceptance-based approach, we can, we can acknowledge that a food craving is present, uh we don't have to satisfy the craving we don't have to suppress the craving we can coexist with the craving and again you know a, a simple kind of analogy that comes to mind is just getting a piece of feedback or advice that doesn't emotionally impact you doesn't change the way that you plan to proceed moving forward you can acknowledge that the feedback has been provided but ultimately it, it's not really altering your your perspectives your emotions or your your plan of action as you continue Uh, with what you're trying to pursue. Um, So we can very clearly see that if you dig into the broader concept of mindfulness and you look at how acceptance-based strategies um, are implemented, we can see that there's a a considerable degree of overlap. So where that leaves us when we talk about mindful eating is, once again, this is not designed to be a weight loss strategy. But it's a strategy that could theoretically induce some modest weight loss in the right circumstances, or it could make a weight loss goal uh, slightly more enjoyable or or slightly more feasible or palatable. It it could uh, alleviate some of the issues that we often run into during a a pre-planned intentional weight loss phase. And the main mechanisms there are, you know, through slower eating, we might have altered uh, satiety hormone kinetics through slower eating. We might have an altered sensory experience and an altered memory of meals. And then, um, because of that overlap between mindfulness and acceptance based strategies, we might be in a position where we can more effectively cope with some of the things that often derail a dieting effort uh, things like hunger, things like food cravings. We might be uh, mentally in a better position to, to, uh, move forward effectively when those things arise. Um, so we've, we've solidified the point that mindful eating is not a weight loss strategy, but you might wonder, I mean, what, what exactly is it for? If, if someone wasn't sitting around saying, Hey, I'm going to build a weight loss plan and it's called mindful eating. What is mindful eating actually for? What is it supposed to do? And what does it actually do in the research? So in in terms of what it ought to do, that's really going to depend on who you ask. Um, so, if you were to ask a Zen Buddhist, uh, what is the purpose of mindful eating? It's very likely that they would reply that, you know, being mindful of the present moment uh, is inherently beneficial for its own sake, whether you're eating, walking, breathing, washing the dishes. Uh, like I said, mindfulness is often viewed as a way to live life more fully, more clearly, and more deeply from moment to moment. So, I think a very common Zen Buddhist perspective, at least as I perceive it uh, from studying it, is that mindfulness is good for its own sake. It, it is a window to help us uh, live our life uh, with more awareness in a way that is that is essentially fuller. We are more fully experiencing the moments that we live if we are able to lean on a, 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 a uh, mental state that really keeps mindfulness front and center. Now, if you ask a nutritionist, a dietitian, or even a psychologist with expertise in eating behavior, they might reply that mindful eating, as in you know, as kind of a intervention, is uh, intended to have beneficial effects pertaining to more behavioral and psychological elements of eating, and might help someone improve their relationship with food. Uh, now, a few years ago, that term "relationship with food." came up so much in the fitness world. And I would see so many people talking about, I have a good relationship with food, a bad relationship with food, you should improve your relationship with food. But I actually didn't see a lot of content about how that's done. Um, And, you know, sometimes people would say, well, just eat more for long enough and you'll be less fixated on food. And that's in some cases true. Um, But when we look at improving a relationship with food, I think that mindful eating could theoretically have quite a role there in terms of thinking about you know recontextualizing our actual experience with food um our emotional experience our sensory experience um you know and, and kind of a more acceptance based approach to our uh our relation to food on a day-to-day basis so if we look at the evidence though and we want to say okay does mindful eating actually change any psychological elements of eating Uh, that's a little more straightforward when, when I was talking about the evidence pertaining to weight loss, it's pretty mixed. Um, but when it comes to psychological effects, there actually are quite a few, uh, systematic reviews and meta-analyses pointing toward quite positive effects. Uh, so Catterman and colleagues, they, they found that mindfulness-based eating interventions led to reductions in binge eating and emotional eating. You and colleagues reported, uh, reductions in emotional eating, external eating, binge eating, weight and shape concerns, along with some potential improvements related to self-acceptance and emotional regulation. Um, Also, there have been some positive changes related to eating behaviors, uh, depression, anxiety, eating attitudes, BMI, and metacognition outcomes based on a paper by Rogers and colleagues. Uh, And one researcher has also speculated, kind of more of a hypothesis, that mindful eating could potentially Alleviate some stress induced digestive issues um, but but certainly a lot more researchers needed to substantiate that hypothesis but the idea is that mindfulness based interventions are usually quite effective for alleviating stress, and the idea is if you have a stress induced digestive issue, perhaps mindful eating would be uh, an effective way to uh, to try to navigate that that challenge um so, in summary, there is a pretty substantial amount of scientific evidence suggested that mindfulness based eating interventions can positively impact several outcomes pertaining to the psychological side of eating. Um, you know, it's possible that some weight loss could occur, but generally speaking, when we talk about mindful eating, I think the, the, area of application with the most promise and the most potential is more on the psychological side of eating perspectives and eating behaviors. Um, Once again, I just want to reiterate I'm not a medical doctor, not a registered dietitian, and not a trained uh, professional in the field of psychology. So this is not medical advice, but this is just kind of uh, an evidence-based look at the literature to date. So Wrapping things up here, you know, just to kind of directly address the question can mindful eating and macro tracking coexist? It's kind of where this all started. And then we got into discussions about what is mindful eating? Uh, can it, you know, exist in the context of weight loss? Does it actually induce weight loss? If not, what does it really induce? What is it really for? But now I want to get back to that initial jumping off point, which is can mindful eating exist? within the context of calorie tracking or macro tracking? Uh, and the, the answer is absolutely. Um, so like I mentioned in this book by, by uh, Thich Nhat Han and Lillian Cheng, Dr. Cheng, uh, in this book there is some uh, direct uh, information about how to kind of incorporate the two. The book goes into some detail about the utility of, of monitoring your own habits in terms of tracking body weight and and tracking your dietary intakes. So categorically, unequivocally, it would be inaccurate to suggest that there is a consensus that mindful eating and macro tracking are incompatible or that you are not allowed uh, to mix the two. And in fact, I would say that some of the more authoritative authorities on the matter actually directly embrace the idea that the two uh, can be combined. And I think the way that they are combined um, is is not just permissible, but I actually view it as being quite complementary. I, I think that the two uh, approaches actually go hand in hand quite well and have a bit of a synergistic relationship. So when we look at macro tracking, we can use macro tracking to get objective data on our dietary intakes, and that can inform some of the qualitative insights that we get from mindful eating. And conversely, with mindful eating, we're getting all of these qualitative insights. We're getting some subjective data that we can use to inform the quantitative insights that we get from macro tracking. So you can see this kind of circular loop where macro tracking is providing objective data to inform our qualitative insights from mindful eating, and mindful eating is providing subjective data to inform the quantitative insights that we get from macro tracking. So... Uh, from my perspective, it's a very complementary relationship. It doesn't mean you have to do both. you could do one or the other. Um, but I, I am uh, I, I very strongly disagree with the common perspective that you have to choose one or the other. I, I just don't see the um, I don't see the justification for that if you actually dig into the roots of where mindful eating comes from and what it appears to do within the literature. So just to give some examples of how you might use these in a complementary fashion, uh, first, imagine that you're a mindful eater who has decided that you want to start incorporating macro tracking. So you're starting from, you know, doing, uh, you know, mindful eating on a regular basis and you're going to add in macro tracking. Um, So previously you were able to interpret your subjective experiences related to your diet habits, um, but now you've introduced a method that will allow you to kind of link those subjective experiences to some more objective feedback. So you can make even more nuanced um, uh, determinations about how certain eating environments or mood states or food choices or subjective experiences are actually impacting the nuts and bolts of your diet. Now, for another example, imagine that you are someone who you've been tracking your diet observationally, right? So what that means is you track what you eat, but you're not actually aiming for specific calorie targets or macro targets throughout the day. Um, if you're starting from that place, you have some quantified objective dietary data, but you don't really have any subjective context about how these numbers are being influenced by things like your eating environment, your mood state, your food choices, and, and all these other subjective elements. So you can see what you're doing, but you don't have access to the observations about the subjective experience underlying some of those choices that you're gravitating towards. So of course, if you implement mindful eating in that context, now you have a more contextualized, more comprehensive understanding, a more well-rounded picture of your overall dietary habits. And so you're getting this this uh, additive information from mindful eating that helps you better contextualize the observations that you're seeing in your food log. Now, finally, for a third example, let's imagine that you're someone who tracks your diet and you are aiming for specific pre-planned calorie targets or macro targets on a day-to-day basis. Uh, You might notice uh, before you start mindful eating that it's harder to hit your macros on some days than others. Uh, Or you might notice that when you eat a certain food, it makes it way easier to hit your macros compared to other food choices that make it way harder. Um, So you might start to notice, like, I'm aiming for the same targets every day, But there seems to be a great deal of variance in how difficult or how challenging this is. You might want to lean on mindful eating as a strategy to, again, further contextualize what you're seeing in your food log or what you're experiencing in the process of trying to hit your targets on a daily basis. You might find that if you implement mindful eating, there are certain eating environments, certain mood states or emotional states. Uh, certain food choices that are really impacting the ease with which your ability, uh, the the ease with which you have the ability to hit your dietary targets on a daily basis. So, just from those examples, those three examples, we can clearly see scenarios where macro tracking can facilitate mindful eating, and mindful eating can also facilitate macro tracking. Macro tracking. So there's this combination of objective and subjective data that can really merge to paint a more comprehensive and more well-rounded picture of a person's overall dietary habits. So let's wrap up the episode with a little summary here. Um, Quantitative diet tracking is a tool, no more, no less. Diet tracking alone is not going to revolutionize your health or your physique, but diet tracking can provide useful and actionable data to help you actually adjust your diet to be more aligned with your goals. For people who are not already predisposed to eating disorders, it appears that diet tracking, when used with flexible cognitive restraint, can be an effective method to help you modify your dietary intakes without inducing disordered eating symptoms or other negative effects on mental health. Now, when it comes to mindful eating, we addressed a number of misconceptions in this episode. Uh, So first, a lot of people say that mindful eating and intuitive eating are the same thing. Uh, That's clearly not the case a lot of people also say that mindful eating cannot be implemented in the context of intentional weight loss or diet tracking. And when we look more deeply at what mindful eating is, where it comes from, and how it's actually implemented, we can clearly see that that's not the case. And in fact, mindful eating and macro tracking in the context of weight loss can be very synergistic as they are used for different but potentially complementary purposes. So mindful eating is an evidence-based strategy that may have beneficial effects pertaining to behavioral and psychological elements of eating and could theoretically help someone improve their relationship with food. On the other hand, macro tracking is an evidence-based strategy that appears to effectively facilitate weight management and the achievement of specific dietary goals. So these two strategies are both evidence-based, but they serve different purposes and they yield different types of information. The subjective information that we get from mindful eating can inform our our dietary practices in terms of our macro tracking, and the objective data that we get from our macro tracking can inform and contextualize some of our subjective experiences that we notice during mindful eating. So a lot of times people uh, wonder which of the two that they should choose between mindful eating and diet tracking, and I say, why choose one when you can easily utilize both? Um Having said that, there are two major caveats for this entire episode that I want to reinforce. First of all, there are some people who are particularly predisposed to developing eating disorders. There are some folks who are at very high risk for eating disorders or might even have current undiagnosed eating disorders. And these individuals should not undergo any intervention involving weight monitoring, diet monitoring, or dietary manipulation without first seeking guidance from a qualified medical professional who has ample training and experience in the area of disordered eating. Number two, uh, people with concerns related to psychological outcomes uh, as they pertain to dieting should not independently use mindfulness-based strategies as a replacement for seeking help from a qualified healthcare professional. Uh, If you have concerns about any psychological outcomes, you should absolutely uh, consult with a qualified medical professional rather than trying to uh, dive right into self-treating something with some type of mindfulness-based practice. This is uh, a very useful set of strategies, but it is not an alternative to seeking important medical care. Finally, before I end this episode, I hope you'll once again afford me the opportunity to make yet another shameless pitch for Macrofactor, which is the diet app, that Greg and I co-developed along with an incredible, very talented team of colleagues. As you consider the wide variety of diet approaches and diet strategies that you might implement in the new year, rest assured, MacroFactor can facilitate whatever you're planning to do. First and foremost, it is a remarkably fast, efficient, and convenient food logger with a huge verified database of foods and extremely easy workflows for custom food creation, Custom recipe creation and even the ability to share your custom recipes. Whatever your food choice preferences are, MacroFactor can absolutely handle it. Uh, the coached programs in MacroFactor have several settings, ranging all the way from ketogenic diets to low-fat diets. Within each macro program, you have the flexibility to choose a protein level that is compatible with your preferences. If you want even greater flexibility, you can branch out of those coach programs and utilize collaborative mode and then if you want maximal customizability you can do a fully manual macro program which gives you the ability to adjust literally anything that you would want to adjust within the app Um, another important thing about macro factor is that when we designed it we designed it with psychology research in mind we wanted to make sure that we were creating a tool that was efficient so it would not cause friction when it comes to behavior change and habit formation. But we also wanted to create a tool that was very supportive. Uh, When you look at the feedback you get from the app, when you look at the design elements, everything was structured in a way so that it would not thwart your psychological needs and it would not give uh, feedback uh, using design elements that would be inherently punitive or demotivating. So Macrofactor truly was designed to be a diet sidekick. It, it, it is not interested in shaming you or <laughs> punishing you for deviating from a particular plan. It was designed to provide all the guidance, support, and analytics that you need without infringing on your ability to make your own decisions and chart your own course toward your fitness goals. So it is absolutely is design, uh, absolutely designed uh, to specifically support your key psychological needs. Uh, specifically as it pertains to self-determination theory and just good basic principles of habit formation, motivation, and behavior change. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check it out at macrofactorapp.com, or you can just search it on one of the app stores. As always, thanks for joining me for another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. We will be back soon with another. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.